Yes, aren't you thankful that the blood of Christ and our risen Savior enables us to enter in to the very throne room of God and offer up that kind of praise? And it's no, it's no small thing if you are a believer here this morning to know this kind of God. I have the sad news to say that our missionary Robert Graham, he lost his brother uh, just in the last 24 hours in a motorcycle accident. And so if you would remember him, uh, his brother, his widow, his two children now that are without a father, and just for Robert and Joanne as they minister to their family. If you would also take your Bibles and turn with me to Philippians chapter 2, verses 12 through 13, uh, probably one of the most important, I believe, uh, passages in all the Bible, Philippians 2, 12 through 13, on page 1165, if you need the Pew Bible, and uh, follow along as we read this powerful passage, Philippians 2, 12 through 13. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, So now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence. Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Let's pray. Father, we come with heavy hearts and we lift up. our brother and sister Joanne and Robert and the loss of Robert's brother and it's our privilege as a partnering church to uphold our global partners and it's not always mountaintops sometimes it's the valley of the shadow of death and so we ask that you would minister to them and we would this week remember them in prayer and uphold them and we're thankful Lord that as we read in this verse that you are at work in us, and through us, and for us. Lord, may you apply this passage even to our hearts as we listen to a sermon about this passage. May you enable us and remind us, Lord, that it's not us, it is you. And it's not by our power, but it's by your power. And so, Lord, give us ears to hear Open our minds that truth will penetrate in. Soften hearts and wills that we will yield to what we are about to hear. If there's any here with doubts, Lord, uh, uh, remove those doubts by the greatness of your love and of your majesty. If there's any here who are struggling with you and resisting you, Lord, show them the greatness of who you are. And those who believe and are following you but may be weary, may they be strengthened by what we hear. In Jesus' name we pray these things. Amen. Well, I concur with what Pastor Chris says. This is a super, super important passage of Scripture here. And, of course, it comes right on the heels of a super, super important passage that we just looked at last Sunday on the humiliation and exaltation of Jesus Christ. So with that in mind, I ask you this question. How many of you like to work out? You enjoy it. Or perhaps you're one who hates to work out. You despise it. 
Or maybe we could ask it this way. How many of us need to work out? No need to raise your hand there. Here's the reality. Every day in every city, millions of people go to the gym to work out. In fact, in the United States alone, there are over 30,000 health clubs and gyms, along with 275,000 personal trainers to go around. And so how many people do you think are working out at these gyms? Well, before COVID, there was over 60 million people who went to a gym and worked out. Do we have any people here that do that? You work out at a gym. Anybody? I see that hand. God bless you. God bless you. God bless you. I see that. Gym memberships are a lucrative business. In the United States, more than $35 billion per year is spent on gym memberships. But did you know that 80% of those people who join a gym will quit after how many months, you think? Five. That's on average. So I'm thinking a lot of people have some pretty good intentions. It's probably January when people are making New Year's resolutions and they're saying to themselves, man, I'm going to get in shape this year. And they're good for January, February, and March, but then comes April and May, and they fiddle out, they phase out, they quit. And the question is, why? Why do 80% of people quit a workout program? And the answer is easy, because it's hard. It's just plain hard. It hurts to work out. It's not easy. In fact, what's interesting is one report says 30% of members actually spend more time chatting with other members than actually working out when they go to the gym. Another report says that 13% of people actually lie about going to the gym, and instead they go somewhere else. But they say they're going to the gym. Or as one jokester put it, my first workout back at the gym was great. I did 15 minutes of cardio, 10 minutes on the defibrillator, then three days in the hospital. Or you might have heard the old joke, when I feel the urge to exercise, I lie down until the feeling just passes. The truth of the matter is we cannot be passive in our spiritual health. We need to be Christians who work out. And here's why. Notice this in your notes. Building Christian unity through Christ-like humility calls for working out what God works in us. Notice again what Paul writes in these two verses. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Why? For it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Now, to understand what Paul is saying here in these two verses, we need to remember the context in which these verses are written. And what is the context? It's all about Christian unity through Christ-like humility. We know this because the very first word in verse 12 is what? In most of your translations, it's therefore. And that word, therefore, indicates that Paul is now referring back to everything that he has previously written about unity since chapter 1 and verse 27, and more specifically here in chapter 2, the previous passage we looked at last Sunday, verses 6 through 11, about Christ's humiliation and exaltation. If you remember back in chapter 1, verse 27, that's where Paul starts, in fact, it's the very first command in the whole book of Philippians, where he tells us 
only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel, so that whether I come or see you or am absent, I may hear that you are standing firm in one spirit. There's your unity. With one mind, unity, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. And then Paul repeats this. He continues in chapter 2, verse 2. He says, complete my joy. How? By being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. So there's your unity. And then he tells us that this Christian unity that we are to live with among one another here in the community of the church, this only happens, it requires how? Christ-like humility. And we see that in verses 3 through 5 where he says, Do nothing now from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind now. What mind? The mind of humility among yourselves, he says, which is yours in Christ Jesus. And then, as we saw last Sunday here in verses 6 through 11, what Paul does is he lifts before us. He lifts up high before us this example, the ultimate example of Jesus Christ, the one who was humiliated in obedience, humbled himself, and then God raised him up again. And Paul takes all of this, and he now applies it to these Philippian believers, and specifically to their problem in the church of disunity that was now festering up, that Paul hears about. And in doing so, he urges these believers at the church of Philippi to now work out what God works in. And so the context for working out what God works in us, has to do with building Christian unity through Christ-like humility. The application of these two verses is first corporate. How the church must conduct itself in Christian unity. And it's then individual. And so this is a both-and text that focuses first on the corporate conduct of the church, which, of course, always includes individual behavior. And so the challenge now to work out our own salvation is to both all of us here this morning as a church and to each of us as its members. Building unity in the church by working out your salvation is the responsibility of each individual Christ follower here this morning. We have a responsibility to, in other words, live consistently with our salvation. We have a responsibility to let the implications of the gospel, the implications of our relationship with Jesus Christ, to now transform our relationships with one another for the sake of unity in the church, all for the purpose of advancing the gospel. And so the whole church now is charged with building unity in the community. How? By working out our salvation. Now, salvation is a rather broad word, is it not? In fact, it covers the full scope of God's rescue of sinners from their sin. And so before we talk about a a workout that works in God's gym, perhaps we should take a moment here and first talk about salvation. Because in the Bible, salvation can refer to one of three dimensions. The first dimension is this. Salvation involves a change in the past. A change in the past. In theological terms, this is called, or in biblical terms, really, 
justification. And this is fundamentally what happens at the core of who you are at the moment of your salvation. You are radically changed. You are born again and you are given a new heart by faith in Jesus Christ. In fact, the Spirit of God now dwells within you. Your sins are dealt with through the atoning work of Jesus Christ. And of course, that work on the cross is finished. It is complete. You are redeemed from your sins. You are now adopted into the family of God as his son or his daughter. Why? Because you now have been justified by God. In other words, you've been declared righteous by God. And this change takes place in the past at the moment of one's salvation, and it is forever settled, it is forever secure. Salvation involves a change in the past, it's just your justification. A second dimension is salvation involves a destination in the future. Biblically speaking, this is called glorification. Salvation is referred to sometimes as this future prize, especially by the Apostle Paul. In fact, you go to 1 Corinthians 9.24 and even here Philippians 3.14, and you read that Paul talks about the goal or the prize of his salvation culminating now in the presence of God where we will be glorified with God in heaven. And so this is something that we look forward to. This is something that is going to happen in the future. Paul says in Romans 13, 11, for salvation is nearer to us now than when we first believed. What does that mean? Well, it doesn't mean that we're now trying to somehow earn our salvation. It means that our future glorification is still to come. We are now closer to it now than when we first believed. But there's a third aspect of salvation yet we need to understand. And that is salvation involves a journey in the present. Biblically speaking, this is called sanctification. The time between our justification in the past and our glorification in the future, the time between those two is what is called our sanctification in the present in which we now live. And this sanctification is a journey that began when God declared us righteous. It continues as we are now made righteous. In other words, it's now a present process in our lives of God doing his work, of God transforming and conforming us into the image of Jesus Christ. And this journey of spiritual growth doesn't happen automatically. It takes work. God's work and our work. And so when Paul says, work out your salvation, I believe that's what he has in mind. This journey of spiritual growth that every Christian is on as long as they are still alive. Now, you can understand spiritual growth this way. It requires your diligent efforts. It requires your diligent effort. And it will never happen without it. But get this, your diligent effort is enabled only by the power of God. And it cannot happen without that. Now what's interesting here in these two verses is Paul makes no attempt to reconcile this mysterious interplay between God's work and our work. Instead, what does Paul do? He commands us 
to work out what God works in us. In other words, divine initiative calls for a human response. And so Paul here is now calling us, if we can put it in more modern terms, he's calling us to join God's gym for a workout that works. Now let's unpack what that looks like. Notice number one. We work out our salvation and we do so in obedience. We work out our salvation in obedience. Now, in our fitness craze culture, people often refer to working out their chest. They work out their arms. They work out their legs. Some work out with weights. Some prefer cardio workout. What's interesting here, Paul's not referring to any of that, is he? Paul is speaking about working out what? Our salvation here in verse 12. Paul is speaking to people who already believe the gospel and have been redeemed by the gospel. And he is saying to them, listen, your life now now needs to be a reflection of the gospel, especially when it comes to your unity in the community of the church. In other words, work out the implications, the ramifications of the gospel in your life. But I want you to see three parts to that here. First of all, there's a foundation to this working out. The foundation for working out your salvation. Therefore, when my beloved Paul introduces the whole thing with these words here, the gospel is the foundation for working out your salvation. The Puritan John Owens put it this way, gospel truth is, only, is the only root whereon gospel holiness will grow. In other words, if you want the fruit of gospel holiness in your life, you must first believe the gospel of Jesus Christ. This is why Paul can call the Philippian believers here in verse 12 what? My beloved. He already called them in verse 1 and 2 the saints in Jesus Christ. Why? Because they're believers in Christ. Here he calls them my beloved. In other words, they are beloved by God. But more importantly, they are beloved by God Almighty as his sons and daughters in Jesus Christ. And so remember, Paul is writing to Christians. And so he isn't defining here how you get salvation. He's referring to how you work out the salvation you already have. Paul does not say work for your salvation. Listen, there's only one person who has worked for your salvation. And that's Jesus Christ. He alone worked for your salvation. Nor does Paul say, work on your salvation. Listen, your salvation cannot be improved upon. Christ's work on the cross is finished. It is complete. And so there's no plus sign here. Salvation is not Christ plus your works. A plus sign suggests that Christ's sacrifice on the cross wasn't enough for you. And so this is consistent with Paul wrote in Ephesians 2, 8, 9, where he says, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not of your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. And so God has worked salvation for us, by his sovereign grace through 
Christ's finished work on the cross, which Paul just wrote about in verses 6 through 11. That's the foundation now for working out our salvation. But there's a resolution that we need to make in all this. The resolution for working out your salvation. Paul commends the Philippians for their history of what? For their, he commends them for their history of obedience. He says they have always obeyed in his presence, and now much more, he's urging them to do so in his absence. Now, this obedience was to God, not necessarily to Paul, although apparently his presence among the Philippian believers in their church encouraged obedience in their lives. And now that some problems of disunity had surfaced in the church, Paul is urging them while he's writing from jail, so he's not in their presence anymore, he's urging them to demonstrate their obedience even more in his absence by now working out their salvation. Paul, in other words, he's basically saying something like this. Growing as a Christian is going to require a daily workout. Equals daily obedience. Working out is daily obedience. Plain and simple. And Paul's asking, basically, are you willing? Because God is. In fact, the power of his grace is already at work within you. In other words, we are to work out our salvation as an act of obedience to God. And such obedience even confirms that we are truly saved. And so in light of Jesus' costly obedience for us, we must persist in the path of obeying the Lord, even when it demands putting others' preferences ahead of your own, even when it's inconvenient, even when it costs us dearly as it costs Jesus' very life. The fact of the matter is, Get this, there is no spiritual growth without obedience. There just isn't. You can't have one without the other. There's no Christ-like humility apart from obeying Jesus Christ. And so working out our salvation requires a resolution on our behalf to do what? To obey each and every day even when no one is watching us. Paul's urging this in his absence do this. Do this among yourselves. I know when I was there with you, you were more motivated perhaps. It's like a parent with a kid. We want our kids to obey even when we're not there. And that's what Paul is saying here now. But what's the motivation for working out our salvation? Well, Paul gets to it. Notice it here. He says, with fear and trembling. If you ever go to the gym, and I'm not one that really does a lot. In fact, I can't really remember the last time I went to the gym, to be honest with you. But I've heard stories that there's always that guy in the gym who loves the mirror. He's flexing in the mirror. You know that guy, right? He's in love with the mirror, especially when he's in it. And Paul is saying here, don't flex in the mirror. Don't work out your salvation with an attitude of cockiness. Instead, work out your salvation with an attitude of fear and trembling. But don't let those two words scare you. 
The reason Paul can say this in a letter that's saturated with the theme of joy is that these two words mean awe and reverence. The idea here isn't to live with terror and fright as you work out your salvation, but to live with an attitude of awe and reverence before the Almighty God. God says this in Isaiah 66 too, These are the ones I look on with favor. Those who are humble and contrite in spirit, who tremble at my word. In other words, God honors people. Remember we saw that the reward for humility is what? God exalts the humble. That's what it's saying here. God honors people who are humble and have a contrite spirit, who have a reverential fear of the Lord. Now, that doesn't mean that we should be terrified of God since we have already found refuge in him, right? We've been adopted into his family. We are his sons and daughters. He's our heavenly father. And that's the relationship we have with him. But that we should live in awe of him. We should live with a desire to please him. This kind of attitude fear and trembling, or awe and reverence. This kind of attitude, it combats all the temptation to flex our muscles in the mirror, doesn't it? Or in the context of Philippians, this kind of attitude combats the temptation to flex our agenda in the community of the church, to flex our preferences in the body of Christ, to flex our our desires, to jockey for our positions by flexing. It combats all of that, and instead to count others more significant than ourselves. And so Paul says that in God's gym, a workout that works means that we work out our salvation in obedience. It also means, number two, that God works in you for his good pleasure. God works in you for his good pleasure. Paul calls us to work out our salvation. And now he gives us the reason or the rationale for it here in verse 13. Look what he says again. For it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. And so understand something here. God is not standing back with his arms folded and kind of just saying, Well, I've done my part in giving you Jesus to live and die for you. Now then, it's up to you to work out the rest of your salvation. Good luck. That's not what God's doing. No, Paul's point in putting the command and the promise back to back is to profile now this process by which God continues to work in us to reshape our lives to conform to the character of Christ. In fact, it, it reminds us of what Paul said earlier in chapter 1. Remember what he said in verse 6? And I am sure of this, that he, God, who began a good work in you, will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. You say, well, how does all this happen? It happens through faith. That's how this happens. In fact, notice in your notes, faith is the God-ordained link between God's work and our work in salvation. Again, remember what Paul said in Ephesians 2, verse 8. What's it say? For by grace you have been saved through what? 
Faith. Faith. So understand something here. The same faith that saved us in the past is the same faith that sanctifies us now in the present. (laughs) Listen, this faith involves dependence on God's work in our lives. There's never a moment when it doesn't. Just as we were dependent on God to give us life then... We are dependent on God to give us life now. And that means salvation is God's work from first all the way to the end, to the last. Understand, we are not saved from self-sufficiency to now just live in self-sufficiency. But that's our, that's our nature. That's what we want to do. That's what we try to do. Listen, we are saved in God-dependency to live in God-dependency. Which means that God's grace undergirds every facet of our salvation. Without God working in us, we would never have the opportunity to work out our salvation because we would neither want to, nor would we even be able to. And so we are totally dependent on God to empower our lives so that we can work out what he works in us. As Walter Hansen put it, who's a a commentator, wrote a book on Philippians here. He says, when our work is empowered by God's work, our work becomes an expression of his work. Now, some of us might be thinking, we might even walk away thinking... Well, when it comes to salvation, this is great. God does his part, and then I do my part. But that's not what Paul is teaching here in these two verses. Think of it this way. You have God's greater work and our lesser work. And so to suggest that this is an equal division of labor, God's work plus my work gets it done, just shrinks the scope of what God actually does within our lives. And so Paul is not teaching here, well, God does this, and I meet him in the middle, and I, can do, and I do this. What Paul is saying is that we work, but when we work, it is God who is working in us. And so it's not... Here's God's part, and here's my part now that I bring to the table. No, instead, any part that I bring to the table is because of what? Because God is working in me. It's all because God's grace is at work in my life. And so this is not an equal division of labor between me and God. You've got to be kidding me to think that. That suggestion shrinks the scope of who God is. And his power in what he's doing in my life with his grace. And so, yes, we are called to work out our salvation. But we could never work out our salvation without God working in us and not merely with us. So what is it that God is working in you and I? Well, notice this in your note. God is working in us to will and to work. God is working in you to will, and to work, Paul says. In other words, by producing a want to, there's your will, and a can do, there's your work, and he does that for our good and for his good pleasure or for his glory. God works in us 
by giving us the desire to do His will and then the power to carry that out. Now, that is phenomenal. That is just mind-boggling when you think about it. Don Carson explains it this way. God is not working merely to strengthen us in our willing and acting. Paul's language is stronger than that. God himself is working in us both to will and to act. He works in us at the level of our wills and at the level of our doing. But far from this being a disincentive to press on, Paul insists that this is an incentive. This is the motivation. Assured as we are that God works in this way in his people, we should be all the more strongly resolved to will and to act in ways that please our master. And so this verse, to me, at least for me, is one of the most encouraging verses in all the Bible. Because I don't know about you, but sometimes I want to please the Lord, but seem to lack the ability or even the energy. Am I the only one here like that? And I'll even go further. There are sometimes, yes, as your pastor, I don't even want to please the Lord. There's days I wake up and that desire is just not there sometimes. I'm in my flesh. I'm I'm living in my sin. And this verse assures us that God now provides for us the desire to do His will when we don't have that desire. And And when that's the case... We can ask God to work in us. God, please create in me this desire to please you and to live for you and to do your will. We can cry out to God and we can pray in Psalm 119, 36. Lord, incline my heart to your testimonies and not to my selfish gain. In other words, because of this verse... And only because of verse 13, we now can press on with joy in the journey that God works in us. He motivates us and enables us to do His will for our good and for His glory. Whoa. I wish we had more time to unpack all this. Because these verses, there's so much there. They're so important and powerful. But what we see in these two verses... If I can say it like this, we see a workout that works. We work out our salvation in obedience in verse 12. And God works in us for his good pleasure in verse 13. Verse 12 says, work out your salvation. Verse 13 says, for it is God who works in you. Now. We need to be careful at this point. We need to be super careful right here. We need to be careful not to separate what Paul joins together here. Because we all have that tendency. We need to be careful not to separate verse 12 from verse 13. Let us not separate what Paul's joined together. And if you notice, the very first word in verse 13 is what? In the ESV translation, it is the word for. And that word for is the super glue that holds these two verses together. But we are prone to separate them. And we need to be careful not to do that. In other words, 
Don't you dare try to be a Philippians 2.12 Christian. And don't you dare try to be a Philippians 2.13 Christian. We need to resolve to be Philippians 2.12 and 13 Christians. And here's why. Here's a word of caution. Trying to be a verse 12 Christian without verse 13 leads to legalism. Listen, many people are trying to live verse 12 lives. This verse, that verse, verse 12, it defines their approach to the whole Christian life. It all depends on them. But if you make verse 12 your life verse, you're going to become an annoying legalist who nobody wants to be around because you think the Christian life is all about working as if everything depends on you, as if God is not in the equation of your life. And what matters most then is always be on your, quote, best perfect moralistic behavior in order to somehow earn blessing and favor with God. But that kind of life, let me tell you, it will rob you of joy in the journey. Every time. But there's also another caution. Trying to be a verse 13 Christian without verse 12 leads to laziness. The motto of these people is often let go and let God. Just let go, let God. Why? God's doing the work, so just let go, relax and do nothing. But what you find is a decade of your life has now passed by, and you've done a bunch of letting go, but no growing in your walk with the Lord. Why? Because you've neglected verse 12. You've neglected to work out your salvation in obedience. So you're no further along in your spiritual journey than you were 10 years ago. As Don Carson explains, this does not mean, therefore, that you back off into passivity. Let go and let God. God's doing all the struggling on my behalf. Rather, it's precisely God working in us that empowers us and compels us and activates us and motivates us and strengthens us in order to keep struggling, to keep working out our salvation in obedience. Listen, as Christians, we're called to live, verses 12 And 13. We're called to work out, in verse 12, what God works in, in verse 13. And so this, that, that's a workout that works in God's gym. And so here is the urging, here is the challenge. Be a Philippians 2, 12 and 13 Christian. Again, as Paul says in verse 12, Therefore, my beloved, there's your foundation. You are beloved by God. As you have always obeyed, there's your resolution. So now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. There's your motivation. And then he says in verse 13, For, for, for it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Listen. You take one verse without the other, and it leads to either legalism or to laziness. But when you work out what God works in you, it leads to joy in the journey and to unity in the community. So if you want a workout that actually works, then join God's gym. And you're like, I'm not sure I'm a part of God's gym. 
I, I don't know. How, how do I become a part of God's gym? Here's the awesome thing. God, through Jesus Christ, has already paid for your gym membership. Your membership's already paid. He paid for it with his death on the cross in full. But you've got to join. In other words, it's by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. Have you come to that part of your salvation yet? Have you humbled yourself to recognize as a sinner, I'm in need of the gospel of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of my sins so that I might be redeemed from my sins and adopted into God's family, his gem. That's the place to start if you haven't already. If you're already a member of God's gym, are you going? Are you working it out? Or has it been far too long since you last did any kind of workout with God? And if you're going to flex, don't flex in the mirror. Listen, James calls the word of God a mirror. That's where we flex. We flex in the mirror of God's word to get an accurate picture of where we need to work out in our lives. Where we're a little flabby. Where we're not so toned and fit when it comes to Christ-like humility and Christ-like character. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for your ongoing work of salvation in our lives. May we be encouraged by the recognition of what you have already done for us in Christ and continue to do in us through your spirit. We ask that you would empower us now with the right motivation to work out our salvation with fear and trembling. And as a result, may you grant us joy in the journey and unity in the community of this church. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.